All right, now let's turn to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. We are closing a very long section that we have been in for a while. The the interesting thing about this text is that it really closes um, something that began in chapter 8. And yet at the same time, and this is, Mark is really really good at telling stories. He somehow both closes a section that we have been in since chapter 8 and introduces us to a whole new section, uh, and, and, and he just dovetails the two things together as, and, and, in a way where it's seamless. Right? This, this Mark, from the very beginning, he said, and then, and then, and then, and then. Then Jesus did this, and Jesus did that, and Jesus did this, and Jesus did that. And, and this has been the action movie gospel, some people call it. Jesus is on a mission. Jesus is all about throwing down Satan. Jesus is in everybody's face. Jesus is pushing the story along. And, and so what you have here isn't just like, right? it's not like the end of a section and then there's, Mark says, okay, now we're going to take an intermission. We're going to have a, a moment to breathe. No, he just goes from one crazy section to another crazy section. And, and it, it seems at first, I think, that I just sort of mashed these two things together. Uh, I thought that several times when I was preparing for this, I thought, you know, it really seems like a stretch. But then you get into the text, you're like, no, these, this is, it's fascinating how Mark does it. You go from last week and it seems like a standalone thing. You get into this week and in one way it seems like a standalone thing, but it's all so interwoven and connected. It's amazing. So the title of this whole series has been The Son of God. And, 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 for the Jews, for Israel, if you're the son of God, you're also the son of David. And, and who Jesus is has been a mystery. And he's wanted it to stay a mystery. Everyone who's figured out who he is, he tells them to be quiet. And this is his big coming out party. He, he is throwing the doors open. He is saying, have at it. I, it's no longer a secret. I am who I am, and I want the world to know it. And his disciples make it known. And, and that's what we're going to look at today. Jesus is going, and now... In the text, we're going to be entering the last week of Jesus' life, and it's going to go from now all the way until Easter. Jesus has been traveling to Jerusalem, and he's about to enter Jerusalem. This is the final stage. This is the big heavyweight battle that we've been waiting for and waiting for and waiting for. So let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for the word um, open to us this morning. We pray that you would give us hope in it, that you would show us ourselves, that you would show us you more clearly, that we would draw nearer to you, that we would receive you, that we would open our hearts and our minds to you, Lord, and that it would not be too late for us. We pray, Lord God, that um, that Jesus would not come to us too late, but that we would um, throw away everything in this world, that we would chase after him, that we, we would um, submit to him, that he would rule over us with his compassion and with his grace, and that we would be, after today, more fully devoted to you. We pray these things in the name of your Son. Amen. <clears throat> the story today begins with a blind beggar. Now, what we have here are two stories about healing blind men that bookend Christ's teaching on discipleship. So from chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10, this is the section about discipleship. 
Jesus has, in, in one sense, taken a break from all of the action to do a lot of teaching in this part. And the thing that he's wanted to teach is what an actual disciple of his looks like. What does a disciple of Jesus do? How does a disciple of Jesus act? How does a disciple of Jesus respond to him? And, and what's interesting here is that Mark actually gives us the name of this blind beggar. That's very odd. Usually Mark doesn't give us that kind of detail about the people that Jesus heals. And I think the reason that he does it is, for the original audience, this story seems hard to believe. It seems, after all of this stuff that Jesus has taught them, that right at the end, there's a guy that so perfectly demonstrates everything that he's wanted the other disciples to demonstrate. It, 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 it sounds like a story that's made up. Because once we go by it line by line, verse by verse, you think that it's just too perfect of a story. Like, you just have too many details there. And in order for us to really believe it, part of the eyewitness account is, is the fact that the man who he healed is a man that everyone knows. You know him, and you know his father. That, that's what we're going to find out. This is, these are two people that everybody who are, who are first receiving this letter know. You know these guys. I'm not making this story up. I know, it's hard to believe, after everything that Jesus said, that this guy would come along and he would be the perfect disciple that Jesus is looking for. It, it, it inspires credulity. But I'm telling you guys, it's true, because <laughs> you know the guy. That's what's going on in the first part of this. And that, that's what I want to explain here, is how perfectly this blind beggar fulfills all the things that Jesus has said a disciple ought to be. And, and, and what it really is is just little breadcrumbs. Because God the Father is saying, not only am I providentially doing this in Jesus' life in, in, with, with real characters, I, I am telling a story that, it, that perfectly demonstrates what I wanted everyone to understand, but it comes right before Jesus enters Jerusalem, and I fulfill promises that I've made, details that I've laid out in the story, going all the way back to Genesis. God is doing it on a small scale in the life of Jesus with this blind beggar, and he's doing it on a large scale. Because you get to the triumphal entry, and that's usually a little part that we cut out all by itself and talk about. But, but I, want to see, I want you to see these stories side by side. God wants you to see his sovereign power. He wants you to see, he wants you to remember what he's promised. He wants you to remember what he requires of you. And he wants you to see that he can... He can direct all of human history to bring about exactly the details that he wants. Details about cloaks, details about donkeys, details about uh, where they stop first, where they stop second. The time of the day they do this, the time of the day they do this. They have packed so much into this that it was actually really difficult to decide what to leave out. And so I, if, if you have... Any doubts, if you have any doubts about the scripture being more than a story. This is what I find fascinating. People who want to just go at the Bible as if it's literary criticism, as if they're just judging it the way they would judge Dickens, or if they're judging it the way, right? Dickens is pretty good. You get to a Christmas Carol and you're like, okay, the spirit of Christmas past. I get what you're doing there. That's very metaphorical. And, 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 and it's amazing when you, right, you read stories and you find out all these little details and they're, and they're very metaphorical and there's a lot of meaning to it. God is the storyteller who doesn't just do that. He does that with real people, right? The ghost of Christmas past is, does, is not real. 
But imagine you're, living, you're standing there with Jesus on the road, and, and some detail comes into the story right? that is full of meaning, that's full of metaphor, that's full of depth and richness, and you think, he just did, like, that guy doesn't even know what he's doing. That guy just walked up and started talking to Jesus, and if you're paying attention to the Old Testament, you're like, how, did that, how is that even possible? That at right this moment, that person would willingly come into the story and be that character. That, this, so the sermon today is about more than just, than just Jesus entering into Jerusalem. It's about scripture itself. It's about the story that we're being told. It's about the story that you're living. Because he's no different. He's no different in, in your life. And if you are stopping and paying attention to the details of your own life, you're going to think, right now, that character walked into this? Who's planning this? Right? If you need to learn not only how to discern this story, but how through discerning this story, you're discerning the story of your own life. This is one of my favorite counseling things. I, I start with this. Okay, if you were a story in the Bible, what story would you be? Who are you right now? What character? And it's very easy, you know, when... When they're, they think they're Job, <laughs> right? But really, they're Solomon. And you're like, no, you're getting lambasted right now, not because you're righteous, but because you're unrighteous, right? This is a, it's a way to cut through a lot of nonsense. But I like it because what, what, what it really does is it lets me into the door right here. Most people don't have any idea what story they are in the Bible. And then that is usually what I spend a lot of time on. Well, let's get to know our Bible a little better. Because whether you're Jonah right now or Job right now, it seems like an important detail. And if this is the story that God gave us to understand the world in which we live, it seems like he's going to work in types, right, in real life. Are you Abigail or are you Zipporah? And, and most of the time when you don't know the difference between those two, that's exactly what I'm talking about. That's the problem. And so I want you, as you're listening to the details of the story, think about your own life. Who are you in this story? This is where we're at. Mark chapter 10, verse 46. And they came to Jericho, and as he, as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples, and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, let's look at these details. Because Mark, who isn't usually very specific, is being so specific. All of a sudden, he goes from very general information to extraordinary detail. Jericho, well, first off, the crowd. The crowd plays no significant role. He just mentions this crowd that comes out of the city at the same time Jesus does. And all he's trying to let us know is that there's a lot of pilgrims on the road. The road is full of people. Because all these people are, pil- are making a pilgrimage. They're coming from all over Israel to go up to Jerusalem because it's going to be Passover soon. And all the faithful Jews go up a couple times a year, including Passover. So there's a huge crowd on the road. That's the only role that the, that the crowd plays. Usually crowds have been a big deal. They're not a big deal. It's just letting you know there's a lot of people on the road. Jericho is the lowest city in the world. It is 800 feet below sea level. Uh, and if you, I mean, this is fascinating. It's not just a Bible fact. You go into Google, you Google it, and it says Jericho is the lowest city in the world. There's a lot of metaphor there. I thought about that. that is, that's almost like a train wreck waiting to happen. So the first place that the, in, in the Old Testament they go and they destroy the city by marching around it is the lowest place in the earth. Lowest place in the earth is like hell. I don't know, there's a lot there. 
Okay, but that's, we're going to avoid that train. Jerusalem is 3,000 feet above sea level. So in order to get to Jerusalem, from the direction that Jesus is going, you have to go on this path from Jericho to Jerusalem, which is a climb of 3,800 feet, which is just a little under Mount Sai. If you know Mount Sai, right here in, uh, out by Issaquah, it's a hike that I've done with my wife. I, I, I feel like that's accomplishing quite something. Everyone's not shocked that I climbed a mountain. Apparently, it's the same as going up to Jerusalem from Jericho. Mount Diablo in California is exactly 3,800 feet. Pilgrims on their way from Galilee would make the long climb to the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is a big deal. You climb, 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 climb in this, this dry, nasty wilderness, and the first place that you come to is the Mount of Olives. And the Mount of Olives is something you're going to hear me talk about over the next couple of months again and again and again and again because it's, it's, it's a significant location. But after this long climb, you get to the Mount of Olives, and the thing that you see, the thing that Jews, it would fill their heart with joy, is, is the city of God. Right? So, I mean, those of you who climbed Mount Sai, you understand, you get up there, and you actually look around, and you think, this is totally worth it. I can see why people hike. Because up here, this looks gorgeous. Now, imagine that long climb, and the thing that you see, the thing that... It, the house of God. You see it. You see the whole city. From the Mount of Olives, you look across, and there it is on Zion, right? There is the city of God shining forth. The presence of God is right there. The pilgrims came several times a year to celebrate their old stories. So several times a year, people would have this long, difficult climb, and then they would get to the Mount of Olives, and their hearts, again, would be filled with joy, and they would be filled with memories of freedom and hope and deliverance and God's presence and God's promises. And, and this is what Jesus is doing. He's making this march. Now think about this. All these pilgrims through how many centuries have been making this climb, and when they get up to the top of the Mount of Olives, they look across to the city of God, and they think God's presence, God's promises, God's victory, God dwelling with the people of God. And here is <laughs> the second person of the Trinity making the same climb. Those pilgrims have no idea who's on the road with them. Jesus came to incarnate. Right? He's the incarnate one. And, and, and what does that mean? It's not just that God became flesh right, and dwelt among us, but he comes and he incarnates the stories of Israel. He's coming and he's showing what they really meant. You had a king on a donkey? Let me be the king on a donkey. You guys made this long climb up to the Mount of Olives to see where God would dwell among Well, God dwelling amongst you went up the same mountain with you. Right? There's nothing that he, <laughs> that the other Jews experience that he also didn't experience, that he also didn't live out in his own life to give it a new meaning. Now, Jesus means Joshua. Yeshua is another way of saying it. Joshua means the Lord saves. So here is Jesus, the new Joshua, the greater Joshua. Right? We've been waiting and waiting and waiting for several chapters. He's making this trip to, to Jerusalem. He keeps talking about how he's going to die, how he's going to go down into the grave, how he's going to come back again, how he's going to defeat Satan, sin, and death. He's going to reconquer the land. And those of us who know the story, remember, well, when they conquered the land, they crossed the Jordan, and what was the first city that they destroyed? Jericho. 
Well, where's the first place Jesus goes when he crosses into the land? Now think of all the, right? There's five or six roads he could have taken. But why this one? Why this one? And does he walk around Jericho seven times and have it destroyed? Right? He wants to show you that Jesus saves, or the Lord saves. He's Jesus. He wants to show you that he is the Savior. And so how is he going to defeat Jericho? Now, bar is a word that means son of. So Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, is very strange. He says, son of Timaeus, son of Timaeus. But what he's doing is he's explaining what Bartimaeus means. Because that, that is a word that they're not used to. And so you can see that they're dealing with languages that the original audience didn't know. So the son of Timaeus and Timaeus are two people that he mentions here because the people who were originally reading the Gospels knew who they were. And for those of you who don't know who they are, he's explaining what the name means. Now the son of David is what the blind man cries out. So here you have all these pilgrims come out the front door of Jericho, and there on the road is a man screaming out at Jesus. Now, if you're a pilgrim and you come through here at all, what you're used to are what? Beggars screaming at people. Uh, I was recently downtown, and I was like, yeah, here we are. There's the crazy guy yelling at the tree. Here's like a couple of people aggressively panhandling. And over time, what do you do? You ignore them. Right? I've heard that's, oh, you ran out of gas, and you have a family of 12. You know, there, I was on this block two years ago, and there was a guy that ran out of gas with a family of 12. It's shocking how the same thing keeps happening. So that kind of cynicism that we all feel is exactly what all these people are saying. Shut up. Stop talking. Be quiet. We all know you're blind. We all know you're begging. Please, get over yourself. And you have this calloused response from everyone. But this guy isn't just crying out, you know, give me money. He's saying, son of David, son of David, show me mercy. And, but, but the people have, have, have stopped up their ears to mercy. They've stopped up their ears to compassion. And why? Why? Are, are there not beggars who take advantage of the fact that they're beggars? Haven't we all seen a few beggars? Right? There, there's beggars that my kids see. They know their names. We have, like, care packages prepared for them in the car because we're going to see them again. And it's like, if they're that routine, right, that's what this is. Of course people are cynical towards such folks. They're not even listening to what the man really needs, what the man really wants. And he's saying son of David, which is a very odd thing to say. Nobody has yet called Jesus this. And what, what does this title mean? Well, if you go back to 2 Samuel 7.16, it says, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. This is a promise that God has made to David. Your house will stand forever. Your throne shall be established forever. There will be a son of David who is the king of Israel forever. So naturally, the Messiah is going to be the son of David. That's what we were promised. Isaiah 11.10, In that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. That son of David, he, he, he is going to, his resting place is going to be glorious. He's going to be a root of Jesse. Jesse, of course, is David's grandfather. If you look at our logo, you actually, there's a stump with a, with a branch growing out of it, and actually it's a reference to this verse with the, the different shades of green. 
Ezekiel chapter 34, And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them, he shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord, I have spoken. Bartimaeus, though he is blind, sees exactly who Jesus is. There's the disciples. Who have, what have they seen? What have they seen with their eyes? And the guy who can't see anything hears it's Jesus and says, oh, I've heard of what that guy has done, and there's only one person who can do what he's done, and it is the son of David. The disciples can't see worth nothing. Right? That's what the whole, the whole the, between the two blind men's stories, that's what this whole thing is about, is there is a blindness that has nothing to do with your eyes. And there is a sight that has nothing to do with your eyes. And the people who should know, don't know. And the people who are outside on the fringe that nobody even takes seriously, nobody even listens to, he's the one everyone should be listening to. Well, that's what Jesus wants. He wants his name proclaimed through all the world. And the guy who's doing it is the guy that nobody listens to. Right? Where the, guy, the guys who have been given all the authority, remember what happened when the last time they tried to re- rebuke a, 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 un, an evil spirit and cast it out? Nobody listens to them. Because their words have no power. Here, this man cries out and cries out and cries out, and here is the Messiah of the world, and it brings him, stops him in his tracks. These clowns can't get rid of a, a demon. This guy cries out the son of David, and he brings the whole thing to a, a, a sh- stop. Everyone stops right in the middle of the road. Hosea chapter 3, verse 5. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the, the Lord, their God, and David, their king. And they shall come and fear to the Lord and to his goodness in latter days. He is a children of he is a true child of Israel. He knows who Jesus is. He knows that coming to him is right. What what does the man need? He's his initial crying out isn't make me see, make me see, make me see. You know what? I'm really uncomfortable with this blindness, and I really want my circumstances to change. Could you please heal me? That's not what he says. He knows he needs mercy, and the first thing that he cries out to the son of David is, "Give me mercy." What are the disciples asking for? Give me your, give me the seat on your right hand and your left. The people that know should know that they need mercy, that they are totally worthless. And, and right, sitting next to Jesus every day, eating fish with him, walking on the road with him, seeing what he does, they should know that the thing that they need is mercy. When Peter first saw Jesus, what was his response? Get away from me! You're too holy. I can't be around this. It's too glorious. Now he's like, hey, let me sit at your right hand forever. I seem pretty worthy. I got this sword. I think I could kill 800 guys. Let's do this, David. And here's the blind guy (laughs) who's blind, and all he wants is mercy. Mark chapter 10, verse 48. And many rebuked him, telling him to be quiet. And he cried out all the more. He cried out all the more. Right There's Peter, there's John, there's James, here's all these fathers, and they're like, shut up, be quiet, sit down. And the word rebuke, by the way, is a very, very potent word. It's the word that Jesus used to get rid of the evil spirits. And we've had this competition all along, right? This is what I'm saying. This, this story is full of details from the last ten chapters. 
Jesus rebukes the spirit and it goes away. They rebuke Jesus when he says he's the Messiah and he says how he's going to die. There's this struggle about who, what spirit is in Jesus. Is it of God or is it of Satan? They don't like the spirit of this blind man. Right? Who's, who are they of in this, in this scene? Jesus casts out evil spirit. The, the blind man is crying out because of the Holy Spirit, and the people who are following Jesus are trying to cast that spirit out. They tried to cast it out of Jesus, and, and they tried to cast it out of other people. They keep doing this. People come up to him in faith. People come up to him with understanding, and they rebuke that spirit. Jesus goes around rebuking spirits, and it's evil, ungodly spirits that are tormenting people. (laughs) Everybody thinks Bartimaeus is annoying. Be quiet. Shut up. But he persists. He's not going to be told to be quiet. I'll use whatever pronouns I want to use. You're not going to tell me what to think. You're not going to tell me how to think. You're not going to tell me what to say. You're not going to tell me how to say it. Jesus Christ is Lord, and I want him to give me mercy. He doesn't care who he annoys. He doesn't care who tells him to be quiet. He is going to proclaim that Jesus is the only way to salvation. I need mercy, and that man has it. Let me at him. Get out of my way. I will yell louder, and I will yell louder, and I will yell louder until everybody stops and pays attention. That's what a disciple is like. This guy doesn't mind shaking a tree. This guy doesn't mind causing a scene. This guy doesn't mind, mind annoying people. Right? He seems pretty rude. What do we think of a guy who just starts shouting out? I'm a person who shouts out. I don't, it's not usually as helpful as this. But I know. I, I shout out at things because I can't help myself. And it's very obnoxious. And, and, and in Christian circles, everyone's like, man, you're, you're, you're like really back there when Dean's preaching. You're back there yelling. What is the matter with you? This isn't the only time. I used to yell out at Mars Hill, too. I just yell out. And, and what I found very quickly is that people don't like that. Right? that don't, don't do that. Put your hands in your lap. Wear nice clothes. Be nice. We're Christians. Right? Be, be polite. What's wrong with you? This guy... What does he think about that? Mark chapter 10, verse 49. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up. He is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and he came to Jesus. This man, in his persistence, in his crying out, stops God in his tracks. What's the will of God at this moment? Here's Jesus on the road. What's his will? His will is to continue moving on. Well, we can't counteract the will of God, can we? God's going in a particular direction, it seems. What we can't do is stop him and call him back and have a conversation with him about what's happening. Right? We can't do that. He's God. He doesn't change his mind. He just goes on. Right? (laughs) He's this... (laughs) impersonal force that we can't deal with. This man is crying out and crying out and crying out and Jesus stops and turns to him. And so what we have now is a calling story, a story about Jesus calling someone. And did Jesus walk by, right? Jesus knows who's who and what's what. He walked by this guy. Did he stop and turn to him and say, come with me, like he did the other disciples? No, he's actually walking past this guy. 
Now, wait a minute here. Right? I thought you were supposed to leave the 99 and chase the one down. So you got blind Bartimaeus who seems to have some faith. He's sitting on the road. Why did Jesus walk by him? It's a good question, isn't it? Well, because (laughs) what Bartimaeus needed was to cry out. What he needed to do was make a scene. What he needed to do was shout and shout and shout and show some perseverance. Show that his faith was legitimate. I really believe that you can help me. I really believe that you can give me mercy. And I'm going to make a big scene here on the side of the road until you stop and turn and look at me. Mark chapter 2 verse 17. Jesus says that he came to call sinners to himself. And in response to this man's pleas, because the man says he's a sinner and he needs mercy, Jesus turns and he says, call him to me. This is a calling story. This is a story about Jesus calling a disciple. And and what he has done through three chapters is tell us exactly how that is supposed to work. And what we want, what we want is is Jesus to come and find us, hunt us down, walk right up to us, tell us exactly what we wanted, he wants us to do, and exactly how he wants us to do it, with no mystery, no difficulty, right? And then we just up and follow him, and and then we follow him on this wonderful path where everything's great. Jesus nearly left this man there. That seems pretty harsh. Why didn't he instigate something with this guy? Now he's calling him to himself. And and, and in Mark chapter 1, this is what he did with disciples. Mark chapter 2, this is what he did with disciples. Calling is what Jesus came to do. And in this instance, he's only calling somebody who first cried out to him. You've got to cry out to him. right? and, And what happens? He's right there. He's right there. He turns and he says, here, call that person to me. Bring them to me. Let me talk to them. Let me see them. This crying out to him, him calling us, is exactly how conversion happens. Take heart. What what, what they tell the man, take heart, is often misinterpreted as cheer up, which I don't think is not at all. It's not at all what Jesus means. Hey, cheer up. Be happy. Right? Doesn't that cheer up? That just sounds like something I say to my kids and they look like... Right When they got the cookie they didn't want. Cheer up. I mean, that's not what Jesus is saying. What, he's saying. what the word actually means is take heart. It says take courage. Have courage. Here this man is. He's standing on the side of the road. He can't see anything. He's shouting it out. Nobody wants to listen to him. Everyone is telling him to be quiet. And now they're saying, okay, all right, right? Now that Jesus has responded to you, now we're going to tell you to take courage and stand up and speak for yourself. What, what a flimsy, flamsy group of people this is. One minute they're saying, shut up. Another minute they're saying, hey, come on, man. Have some courage. Where were you two minutes ago? But take courage. Mark chapter 6, verse 49 and 50. And when they saw Jesus walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. That's what Jesus said to these disciples. So what you do is you get a glimpse of a moment here where now, okay, now the gaze of Jesus is going to fall upon this man. And you know what? I I actually appreciate what the disciples are doing here because they know how terrifying Jesus can be. Jesus doesn't tell them to say, take heart. 
they know who Jesus, <laughs> they've been with Jesus for a while, and they're like, okay, now, now Jesus is going to talk to this guy. You know what? Now you should have courage. That's what the courage is about. Take courage, not because you're going to cr- keep crying out and all these people are going to tell you to be quiet, but now you're actually going to become, come before the face of God. You're going to actually talk to the Messiah. And we've been there. Let me t- there was a time when he walked out on water to see us, and we were terrified. There have been times where he has done things where he, f- he, he, he shocked us. There was a, a crazy man that he, he, he just said, he rebuked the spirit in him, and this guy that would have murdered all of us was suddenly in his right mind. So I think this is a moment where they're like, Jesus can't hear it. They're just like, okay, oh man, right, what's going to happen here? Here's a blind guy. There's Jesus. Okay, dude, have some courage. He's calling you over. But this is exactly what Jesus has wanted. He wants to come and he wants to give us courage. Right? How, would, how many of you, if you cried out to God and he responded to you, would, how many of you would that, that would fill your heart with courage? You need a comforting word and a word of comfort comes. You need to know what to do and a moment of clarity comes. Joshua chapter 10, verse 25. And Joshua said to Israel, Do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous. For thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. Jesus is fulfilling even older stories than the ones that he has lived out in the Gospel of Mark. He wants us to have courage. And he's reacting to us in such a way as to give us courage. And and what good disciples do is encourage one another with the same advice. Take courage. Step up. Don't draw back. Now, how, how has this disciple responded thus far? It's really funny that, you know, in another sense, there's so many various things going on here. Jesus didn't say to take courage. They tell him to take courage. But does it, but how does that seem like it's working? Because what does the guy do when Jesus calls him? He jumps up, throws away his cloak, and runs over to where, how does a blind man run? Right? I mean, think about that. Like a blind man, there's all these people on the road. It's not like he has a stick where he's like, right? It's not like there's a curb. It's not like you have that crosswalk where it's like, walk this way, you know, where it's like very directional. This man who's blind jumps up and and runs over to where Jesus is. I I think he's got plenty of courage. He seems more prepared to go before the face of God than these other guys. Right? They're showing a little bit about themselves by saying take courage. He seems fine. He seems fine. Now, this man who owns a cloak, he is a beggar. A cloak is a very expensive thing to own at the time. You don't have a lot of them. It works as a blanket. It works as a tent if you, right, if you need to make a lean-to. It works as something to sit on the dirty ground. This man takes his cloak and throws it away. It's the only earthly possession that he most likely owns. Now, what was it that Jesus wanted the rich young ruler to do? What was it that he called all the other disciples to do? Leave everything and follow me. So before any interaction, before the man is healed, before there's any other information given, this man is acting exactly like a disciple ought to act. He chucks away his cloak and he runs after Jesus. He clearly has all kinds of courage because he doesn't seem to worry too much about tripping over himself or tripping over others. Mark chapter 10, verse 51. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. This man wanted mercy. 
He just wanted mercy. Did he get more than he asked for? The question, what do you want me to do for you, is exactly what Jesus asked James and John. Same words. But what does this man want? What did they want? The question to the disciples is exactly the same. Right? We, this guy at least starts from the right position. He knows that he needs Jesus because he knows that he needs mercy. He comes to Jesus and Jesus says, what can I do for you? Oh, um, well, I guess I'd like to see. Okay, done. Look at your faith. Look at your faith, of course. Your faith has made you well. You believe that I, right? you believe that I can actually give that to you? Boom, done. Rabbi is what he calls Jesus, right? What happened to the son of David? But see, but this, there's, there's several different words that they translate to be rabbi in English. But the word that he actually uses is my Lord or my master. My Lord or my master. And so I, the reverence hasn't gone. It wasn't like he just cried out the son of David and it was sort of like a crapshoot and it turns out, oh, he is the son of David. Right? It's not like this guy is used to just calling people son of David when they pass by him, hoping that someday it's going to be the Messiah. <laughs> he has reverence for Jesus because he really believes he is the Messiah. And, and this is how Jesus is defeating Jericho. Here is Jericho. He is the Messiah, and this is what it says in Isaiah 35, verse 4 through 6. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. What did they tell this man? Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. When the Messiah comes, what he's going to defeat is Satan, sin, and death. What he's going to defeat is the fall. And so Jesus isn't concerned about the city of Jericho because he's not concerned about earthly possessions in exactly the same way. He wants the hearts of everyone who lives in Jericho. He's going to defeat the world, but he's going to do it right, through grace and through mercy and through compassion. By put, right, All the things that we suffer from, the blindness, the physical ailments, the, the lack of understanding... This man's, right, he was poor, and he was living on the side of the road. Now what is he going to do? He's going to follow Jesus. Do they seem like they have uh, wants? Does it seem like the people who follow Jesus go hungry? Do you think this man's going to have to beg anymore? So his entire situation is altered by Jesus. He's totally freed by Jesus. He was outside of the community. Now he's inside the real community of Jesus. Right? What, what, what everybody wants, if this was the Messiah that, that all the other Jews were looking for, he would have come and he would have breathed out fire and Jericho would have just burned to the ground. Right? If he was really the guy that's going to free us from the Romans, what we need is a man that shoots thunderbolts out of his eyes. And that's what they've all been waiting for. What they're not expecting is this man who meekly comes, walks by, and then heals a blind man. Who's ever healed a blind man? Other people make this point. Who is this guy? Who heals blind people? The faith of the man works. 
It's the faith of the man. That's what Jesus is responding to. The, he, right before, remember the man who came to Jesus, whose son had a demon. All the details in this story are an echo from earlier. That guy said, hey, if you can make my son better, would you make him better? This guy doesn't have any, there's nothing in his mind where he's like uncertain. Jesus asked, what can I do for you? He said, oh, make me, make me see. Implying what? That Jesus absolutely can make him see. And, and it's the believing that Jesus can is how he does it. That's what all the stories about the faith are so important. Because we believe he can, right? Our believing in him, our faith in him, is the means by which he does the very thing we're desiring him to do when we desire it in faith. The faith is how he does it. This is hard for us to understand, but faith is the mechanism, right? Places where Jesus went, where they didn't have a lot of faith, he couldn't do much. Where, you, where, where faith exists, his works are manifest because the faith is, is the conduit and it, it's the means by which he does the very thing he desires us to do. But we have to do them in, by faith. This man acted in nothing but faith. James and John, they came to him and they had desires, but they weren't asking in, by faith, were they? They were asking selfishly. And this is what James says. You, 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 you don't have because you don't ask. You don't ask rightly. This is how you, this is how you pray. We were several weeks ago. From the very beginning, son of David, you call out praise. I need mercy. That's not very descriptive, is it? Pretty general. Right? Then Jesus responds to him in words. Like I said, the word of God comes to this man. And then he says, what can I do for you? And then he gets very specific. And, and, and at that point in the prayer, right, after we've acknowledged that God is who he says he is, after we've acknowledged how much we need mercy, then we get down to what we actually want him to do, and, he, and, and asking in faith is how he does it. When he's not doing things, the question that we have to ask ourselves is, are we asking in faith? Do you have enough faith to ask things of God? And stories like this is what gives us more faith. This blind man knew who Jesus was. He knew. He knew what he needed, mercy. Anything else that he got after that is just icing on the cake. Right? Generally, <laughs> I just got myself praying this way the other day. Give me, give, make sure that guy gets that and do this for them and, um, yeah, and do that for them. And then, yeah, I could use some mercy. Now, how would you respond to that prayer? Now, there's one last thing here about Bartimaeus, because he is the perfect disciple. He cries out for mercy. He throws away everything he owns. He runs after Jesus. He, he, he makes a, a personal request of Jesus only after being asked. He has perfect faith in him. And now Jesus says at the very end, go your way. Right? Go your way is what he says. But in the end, what is your way? What is the way that he goes? 
It says this in verse 52. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed Jesus on the way. Jesus tells him, go your way. Go. And this man follows. What what is this man's way become? This man's way has become Jesus's way. That's what a fascinating play on words here. The guy says, go, right? This is true freedom. The Son of God gives, makes us free. He makes us free indeed. Go your way. And this man's way is Jesus' way. He could go back to Jericho. He could go back to Galilee. He could go here. He could go there. He's like, oh, I could see now. You know what I've always wanted to do is be a boat captain. I really always just want to be a fisherman. I really always want to be a banker. I really always want to be a farmer. Think of all the things this guy probably all the years of his life wanted to do. And Jesus says, go your way, go. You're absolutely free now. And this man, his choice is Jesus' way. And the way is what they used to actually call the Christian faith when it first started. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 6, this is how how uh, Moses referred to the law of God. He said, So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. So the law of God is described as the way of God. Jesus comes, and in John fourteen six he says, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In Acts chapter 9, verse 2, this is how it is referred. The Christian faith is a sect. It's called the way. Paul refers to his belief as the way. So this man's way is, 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 the, is the traditions of Israel. It's the law of God, which is embodied in Jesus, which is what the Christians become. This, this man went from here and didn't go any old way he wanted. He went the way of Jesus. If we had any doubts about what kind of Messiah this is, if we had any, doubt, any other doubts about what he was intending to do, before he enters Jerusalem, I think Mark has put them to rest. If we had any other doubts about what God was hoping, we, how we would respond to the whole thing, I think he's also put it to rest. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the one who fulfills the promises of God by delivering us from Satan, sin, and death, from everything that, that terrorizes us, everything that breaks us down, everything that holds us in bondage. He makes us free indeed to be what we were created to be, which is sons and daughters of the living God, who follow him on his way. So Jesus is ready, right? He's now, he's in the land. He's conquering the land. Now is the time, after all of these chapters, after all of this travel, after all of this work, we're, okay, now Jesus is going to go up to Jerusalem and fulfill everything that he promised to fulfill. Now this seems like a long section. Right to go over here. But I actually just preached on this uh, the last time we had uh, the Palm Sunday, just earlier this year. But why can we believe that Jesus is the Son of David? Right? What has he already done? Is he the manna from heaven? Does he, has he bound the strong man, does it seem? Does he seem like he can go anywhere on the earth and do whatever he wants? Satan be damned. It does. The only thing that's in, right? So now, now he's going to go up to Jerusalem. Now he's going to clean house. Now the disciples are sitting in the back of the tent thinking, okay, baby, now it's going to get real. They still don't understand at all what he's doing. But we know, don't we? So at this point, what do you expect him to do? 
Well, <laughs> he goes and he gets a donkey. Well, he doesn't get a donkey. He sends lackeys to get a donkey. Then he rides on the donkey. Then people come out and they throw blankets down in front of him and their cloaks on it, and they put palm branches in front of him, and they start singing this song. And it all seems very odd, doesn't it? We're, we're somewhat used to it at this point. But you've got to think about it from their point of view. The disciples, this is the closest they're going to get to what they think is really going to be the kingdom of God as they imagine it. They have not understood this, right? The this, this story of Bartimaeus, they're all standing there, and they're just as blind as they were before. Bartimaeus saw with his, with his spiritual eyes, and now he sees with his physical eyes. And they're standing there, and they can't see for looking. And I, and I feel bad for them, because the next thing that happens is they go up to the gates of Jerusalem, and they get as close to they, as they're ever going to get to what they think Jesus is going to do. Because in, in the Old Testament, kings of peace... Kings who have already had the victory ride a donkey. Kings who are going to war ride a horse. In First Kings, this is what they do. They go and, they, and David says, get my son Solomon. We don't want warfare. We don't want a civil war. Get a donkey, not a war horse. Put him on the donkey and lead him into the city and declare him to be the king. And so Jesus says, go get me a donkey, not a horse, a donkey, because I want to be very clear. I'm, I'm here to burn this place down, but not in, at all the way that you guys think that I am. And they think, oh, yes, yeah, the victory's already happened. Now he's going to go in and we're going to make him king. And so they take their cloaks and they throw them down in front of him. Now, do we, do we, in the hot sun with all the dirt, do you put your clothes down on the road for a farm animal to walk over for a really good guy? Do you put your clothes down for a farm animal to walk over over somebody who's a really good teacher? Now, who do they think he is at this moment? They're crying out. They're saying, Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna in the highest. Now, this is from Psalm 118, something they call the Hillel. It's a festal song composed of Psalm 113 through 118, sung regularly during the Passover season. So they've been singing this, this Hillel all through the, the, the time leading up to this moment where they're entering the Jerusalem. So it's fresh on all their minds. And so they're singing this song because they recognize in Jesus... This crowd that's following him isn't some random crowd. It's his own followers. They are thrilled by what's happening now. They're singing this Passover song. They're throwing their cloaks down in front of him. Finally, that humility that we've been waiting to see from all of them is exhibited. Right? The palm branches are from a, a holiday called the Feast of Booths in which they would celebrate their time in the desert by everybody going outside of their own homes and living in little tents that they made out of branches. Well, we don't need those anymore. We don't need them anymore. We're not celebrating that anymore. We're, the wilderness time has ended. The exile has ended. This time where Israel is a punching bag for all of these empires is over. Take those palm branches and lay them down in front of the king of peace's donkey because that time is all in the past. This Passover song has never been more appropriate. Here comes the son of David. They are, in a word, Throat. And Jesus enters into the city of Jerusalem. And he goes into the temple. And he looks around at everything. And it was already late. So he goes out to Bethany with the twelve. And for Mark, 
who is an excellent storyteller, that is the most anticlimactic thing I have ever heard. In Genesis, the patriarchs promised that, uh, that Judah would ride on a donkey and the scepter would never leave his hand. We're throwing our palm branches down in front of you, Jesus. We're throwing our clothes down in front of you, Jesus. You're on a donkey, Jesus. You already won, Jesus. Let's go in here and let's make you king. And we go in and we look around at the temple and we leave. I, I, I would not want to be standing next to Peter at that moment. What do you mean we're leaving? We're what? We're what? I'm sorry, what? Did he just, what? Think how devastated these people are. This is the moment. We're singing this song. It's Jesus. He's riding into the city, and now we're leaving. Let's see, it's, it's too late. It's too late. Maybe if Jesus hadn't helped that blind guy, we would have gotten here earlier. It's too late. There's nobody at the temple. There's nothing going on at the temple. They've, the services are over. So they leave. Now, what does, that, what does that really mean? Why did Jesus enter when he entered? Why did he come to the temple too late? Because he wants everyone to understand, for this place, it's too late. Right? They keep sending delegates from this place out to where I've been, ministering for three years, and all of them wanted to put me to death. It is too late for this place. If they would have sent me delegates right, who would have understood who I was, we could have worked out some sort of power exchange. Maybe the story would have gone differently. We know it wouldn't have, though, because nobody wants him. The only reason all these people are freaking out and loving it here is because they think he's really now going to be sitting them at the right hand and the left. Jerusalem has waited too long. In other accounts of this, Jesus comes and he sees Jerusalem for the first time and he starts weeping. And he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, if you had only known what makes for peace. It's too late. Is it too late for the disciples? Is it too late for you? Have the trappings of your faith, right? Is Jesus in them? Is Jesus in the midst of you? Are you crying out to him for mercy? Are you his disciple who throws away everything and runs after him? Do you know that you're blind? Do you know that you need mercy? Is it too late for you? This is the thing that we all, we all have got to get behind this in our own lives and for this world. There is a moment that is too late where Jesus comes and the shop is closed. He is going now out with the twelve because he's going to start over. He's taken a remnant with him and he's starting over. And, and this, there is such a thing as him waiting too long. Now, the blind man who's on the side of the road, Jesus walked on by him. And he knew that if he didn't hurry and if he didn't scream out louder no matter what it cost him, no matter how much it annoyed everybody, he knew that there would be a moment in which Jesus would pass on by and it would be too late. He understood the story better than anybody else. Stop him. Come back. Help me before it's too late. Clean house. Because there is a time where Jesus will come again and it will be too late. 
And for people like me, I get so distracted by all the details. Whoa, look at that. He fulfilled Genesis 49. He fulfilled Deuteronomy 8. And he's fulfilling Isaiah 53. Right? And I'm like, hey, let's throw the cloaks down. Let's throw the, the leaves down. Let's put them on the donkey. Let's do all the symbolism. This is, this is awesome. And it's too late. Unless the point of the story is that this is the son of David, we need mercy, and he's the only one who can give it to us, and we need it right now. Don't be distracted by the bells and whistles. Don't be distracted by the trappings of your faith. The point is Jesus. He's passing by us, right? Because he's the God that came into the world. Don't let him pass all the way by. Clean your house. Get it in order. Because there will be a day when he comes and it it could be too late. Cry out to him now. Stop him now. Get his attention now. Submit to him now. Throw away everything and follow him. It's not about your way. It's about his way. That's what we need to understand. That's what we need to teach our spouses. That's what we need to teach our children. And this is what we need to stand on the side of the road, yelling out as loud as we can to annoy everybody until everybody stops and pays attention. Don't let Jesus pass you by. Don't let him come too late. Amen. Father, we thank you so much for your word and your son and how he fulfilled, Lord God, the promises and the details. And he didn't just incarnate flesh. He incarnated the history of Israel and gave it meaning. We pray, Lord God, that we would see in these things the deep truth, the power that you have over every detail of our lives. We pray, Lord God, that we would take you more seriously, that we would take our sin more seriously, that we would cry out as you pass us by, that we would clean our houses and so that you would not, Lord God, come too late to them. We, we praise you and we thank you and we, and we pray, Lord God, as we go from here, that we would cry out, that we would clean house, and that we would do so by crying out to you for mercy. And amen.